This is now the third installment of a teaching that I am referring to as Seedology. So far, what we've seen is the Abrahamic covenant moved from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Jacob, at the beginning of chapter 29, went on a journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. And he met some shepherds from Haran. And while he was with them, he met Rachel, and he fell madly in love with Rachel. And so he went to work for Laban. For seven years, he labored in order to get Rachel as a wife. But on his wedding night, turns out that Laban pulled a bit of a fast one and actually gave him Leah because Leah was older than Rachel. So Jacob worked another seven years in order to get Rachel. Well, finally, he ended up with Rachel, Leah, and each of their handmaids. And so through four different women, he ended up producing 12 sons. The oldest of those sons was Reuben, who Leah bore to him. And then he had other sons through Leah and her handmaid and Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah. But finally, God opened Rachel's womb and she produced a son whose name was Joseph. Because Joseph came through Rachel, the beloved wife, Joseph became the favorite of the sons. Now there is another younger boy who comes along later named Benjamin, but Joseph is still the favorite. So favorite, in fact, that his father gives him a multicolored coat, a gift that he doesn't give to any of his other sons. Now, under standard reckoning, the firstborn, Reuben, would get all of the rights of inheritance. He is, after all, the firstborn son. But that's not the way it turns out. In chapter 35 of the book of Genesis, we get a listing of the 12 sons of Jacob, and it goes like this. The sons of Leah are Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel are Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, are Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, are Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. In chapter 37, we read that Joseph, the favorite son, had a dream in which all of the sheaves belonging to his brothers all bowed down to his sheaf. And then to add insult to injury, he had yet another dream And he told that one to his brothers as well and said, Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. That caused enough infuriation among his brethren that they ended up plotting against him and ultimately selling him to some Midianite traders. Then they went home and lied to their father and said that he was dead and showed him the coat of many colors with some blood on it which they had actually placed on it from an animal. Chapter 38 tells us the story of Judah and Tamar. We're going to get back to that later, but for the moment, let's concentrate on Jacob and his 12 sons. Joseph ends up in Egypt. 
He gets accused of some chicanery with Potiphar's wife, and he ends up in prison. There, he interprets some dreams for the Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. And when the cupbearer is restored to his position, he hears that Pharaoh has had a dream, and Pharaoh can't figure out what it means. So the cupbearer tells Pharaoh about Joseph languishing in his own prison. So Pharaoh sends and calls for Joseph. Joseph interprets the dream. Pharaoh is so impressed with the interpretation that he then gives Joseph a position of tremendous authority, second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And while he's there in Egypt, he marries an Egyptian woman, Asenath, the daughter of Portophera, a priest of On. Through that marriage, he produces two sons. The firstborn is Manasseh, and then the younger is Ephraim, or you might say Ephraim. Meanwhile, God yet again caused a famine in Canaan, and so ten of the eleven brothers of Joseph come down to Egypt looking for food, because Joseph's master plan had actually created storehouses of food in order to endure the seven years of famine. And who do they end up standing in front of? Well, you know the story. It's Joseph. Joseph, while still disguised, while still unrecognizable as an Egyptian ruler, asks about their father and asks if they have any other brothers. They admit that their father is well and that they have a brother, Benjamin. Joseph uses Benjamin to put them to the test to discover whether or not they are honest men, and then he reveals himself to them. When they find out that it's him, they're, of course, terrified. He ends up forgiving them, treating them well, and saying, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring about this present result that many are saved alive. So not only is it a reunion among the 12 brothers, but it is God's intervention in unifying the seed and keeping the seed moving forward. When Jacob himself finds out that Joseph is actually alive and thriving in Egypt, he himself goes down to Egypt. In chapter 46 of Genesis, starting at verse 8, we get yet another listing of the names of the families of the sons of Jacob, whose name by then had been changed to Israel. And they all collectively head down to Egypt because, well, that's where the food is. And that's where Joseph has so much influence. And he gives them the land of Goshen, a good fertile land, to raise up their families. Now, Jacob was pretty old when he came to Egypt, and he dies in Egypt. But before he dies, he needs to hand out the birthright blessing. And that takes us to Genesis chapter 48. Starting at verse 1, now it came about that after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. 
So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, he collected his strength and he sat up in his bed. And then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of people, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are mine. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died, to my sorrow, in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons, whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. So what's he doing? He's getting ready to hand out the birthright blessing. Technically, this blessing belongs to Reuben, but that's not who's going to get it. Now, the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Jacob took them from his knees and bowed his face to the ground, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim at his right hand, toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and he brought them close to him. Okay, so what Joseph has done is that he has taken his firstborn, Manasseh, and put him at his father's right hand, so that when his father reaches out to lay hands and give the birthright blessing, it will go to Manasseh, the firstborn. Jacob, apparently expecting that to be the case, very wittingly crosses his hands so that his right hand falls on the head of Ephraim. Verse 14 says, But Israel stretched out his hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth, And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said, Not so, father, for this one is the firstborn. 
Place your right hand on him. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel shall pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Once again, the older ends up serving the younger. Once again, that whole rite of firstborn is turned on its head. It was supposed to go to Reuben, and instead it went to Joseph and to Joseph's younger son, specifically to Ephraim. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers, and I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, the next thing that happens in chapter 49 is that because he is dying, Jacob gathers all of his sons around them so that he can tell them what's going to befall them in the latter day, in the latter time, as they continue as a family, as they continue as tribes, as they scatter around the land of Israel. And he says, Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So that's the reason that Israel gives for why Reuben will not receive the blessing of the firstborn. But it's actually all part of the providence of God as he is steering and directing the line of the seed. And then he speaks to each of his sons and he gets to Judah. And he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares to rouse him up? The scepter, the sign of rulership, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. So what just happened? Israel very specifically singled out Judah and said that Judah was going to have the preeminence that was taken away from Reuben and that the other brothers, the other sons of Israel, were going to bow down to Judah and to his offspring because it is through Judah that Shiloh is going to come. And then even mentions a donkey, which has a direct reference, I think, 
to the triumphal entry when Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey that no man had ever ridden before, and then the fact that his robes are covered in blood. Not only a reference to the torture and persecution of Jesus Christ, but also an eschatological reference, because in the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes back, his robe is dipped in blood. And repeatedly, Israel compares him to a lion, and that is why Christ is known as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So what we see here is a division between the spiritual and the physical aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. The physical inheritance, the right of the firstborn, all went to Ephraim. But the spiritual aspect of through you all the families of the earth will be blessed has gone to Judah. This became such a well-known fact in Jewish genealogy that it's even recorded in the book of First Chronicles. Now, by the way, First Chronicles includes a tremendous amount of genealogical information tracing the descendants of the various sons of Israel. But chapter 5 of First Chronicles says this, starting at verse 1, Now the sons of Reuben... The firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Verse 2, though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him comes the leader yet the birthright belongs to Joseph. So the writer of 1 Chronicles is very aware of this split, of this division. The birthright technically belonged to Reuben, but he was passed over. And despite that, Judah has prevailed over his brothers in that it is through him that the promised seed is going to come. It is through Judah that Christ is going to appear on the planet. So while it is important for the sons of, say, Levi to know their genealogical pedigree so that they can prove that they can work in the temple because it is only the Levites who end up working in the temple for God and they don't get a portion of land. Instead, they get tents from all of the other tribes. And so in order to secure that position, you have to be able to prove that you're from the tribe of Levi. In the land of Canaan, Israel, in order to get a portion of land, you have to be able to prove what your lineage is, who your family is, who your forefathers are. But really importantly, no matter what, the tribe of Judah has to continue. Regardless of what else happens in human history, the tribe of Judah must continue. The genealogical line has to continue producing the ultimate seed, Jesus Christ. And that kind of takes us to the story that I skipped over earlier and said that we would get back to, the story of Judah and Tamar. It's not a pretty story. 
And yet, it is a perfect demonstration of God's continuance of the seed of Judah leading to Christ. Chapter 38 of the book of Genesis seems like just a story of incest, and why is this even included in the Old Testament? But let's look at the details, and I think it will become obvious why this all took place. It is sinful, just like selling Joseph into slavery was sinful, just like lying to Jacob about his son was sinful. Nevertheless, God entered into it to work his good, just like Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result. So God knows, God has determined that Christ is going to come through the tribe of Judah, but that lineage looks like it's come to an end. Chapter 38 tells us, And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brethren and visited a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. And he took her, and he went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son, and named him Onan. And she bore still another son, and named him Shelah. And it was at Chazib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. And then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Okay, so two sons are dead without producing an heir. The third son is too young to do that. And then in verse 12, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, dies. And after the time of mourning had ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear the sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given him as a wife. So she's taking matters into her own hand here. She is dressing like a harlot and placing herself along the side of the road where Judah is going to see her. Verse 15 says, When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. 
So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, Therefore, I will give you a kid of the flock. And she said, Moreover, Will you give me a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give to you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that you have in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the kid by his friend, the Adullamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hands, he could not find her. And he asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enaim? And they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah, and he said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Well, then let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this kid but you did not find her. So he wanted his reputation to be intact. He didn't want anyone to know that he had visited a prostitute during his travels, and he didn't want it known that he didn't pay his debts. I mean, after all, he tried. Starting at verse 24, now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. Lots of self-righteous hypocrisy going on here, as well as the illicit sexual relationship. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring, cords, and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. And it came about, at the time she was giving birth, that, behold, there were twins in her womb. And moreover, it took place while she was giving birth that one put out his hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread around his hand, saying, This one came out first. Again, they're concerned about the right of the firstborn. Who's going to be the first child who shows himself out of the womb? But it came about... As he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out first. And then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So his name was Perez, and afterward his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. So what was the point of that chapter, and what was the point of me reading all that? That even through the sinful proclivities of human beings even through chicanery, even through the lawlessness of Judah not giving his youngest son to Tamar, even through her short-term prostitution, 
and the demonstration of Judah's own sinfulness so that he would say, she's more righteous than I am. Through all of that, the seed continued through Judah. And when you get to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew opens with a genealogy, tracing the seed. And who do you find in that lineage? Verse 2 says, To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram. And to Ram was born Aminadab, And then it continues on until you get to Jesse. And then you get to David. And then it goes through Solomon. Leading person by person, generation by generation. Even though there are multiplicities of other people born through these family lines, nevertheless, Matthew begins by drawing a direct line, a direct lineage, a direct seedology from Abraham through David, through Solomon, finally down to Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. In the book of Luke, then, in chapter 3, starting at verse 23, we find another genealogy. And the genealogy is slightly different than Matthew's genealogy. And he says, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph. And then he works his way backward to David and to Jesse, down to Boaz, to familiar names like Ram and Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, and the son of Abraham. And then he continues and mentions people like Lamech and Methuselah and Enoch and Jared, working his way all the way back to Adam. Now, scholars argue that the genealogy in Matthew, which we're told is the genealogy of Joseph, the husband of Mary, in Luke's genealogy, the differences are explained by the fact that it is Mary's genealogy. But either way you trace it, no matter what, you see God protecting the lineage, protecting the line, protecting the seed, because it is through Judah that Messiah is going to come. Through the genealogies, we see that in tremendous detail. But even in the largest picture, the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you see demonstrations of it. For instance, Solomon, we're told, loved many foreign women. As a consequence, he chased after their foreign gods. And so God told him, Yahweh, Israel's God, told him that the kingdom was going to be divided during the time of his son. He was going to lose the ten northern tribes. Those ten northern tribes are known collectively as the house of Israel or the house of Ephraim, sometimes even called Mount 
Ephraim. The southern two tribes, along with the Levites that worked in the temple, go by the name of Judah, the house of Judah. So even those tribal designations of the northern and the southern kingdom are split between Ephraim and Judah. Then sure enough, after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes king. But through a series of very providential events, the northern kingdom makes Jeroboam their king, and Jeroboam is concerned that the people of his kingdom might return to the southern kingdom because, after all, that's where the temple is. So he encourages them to continue worshiping foreign gods, and he sets up places of worship in the high places and in the groves, worshiping these foreign gods. As a consequence, God punishes the northern kingdom, the house of Israel, Mount Ephraim, and he brings the Assyrians down on them. The Assyrians take them into captivity. But at the same time, God protects the southern kingdom, Judah. The Assyrians get practically right to their gates. And then an angel comes in and fights for them, and Judah is secured. Okay, so why is it? Since Judah ends up just as guilty, according to the book of Ezekiel, as the erring sister of the northern tribes, Ephraim. And yet God protects the southern kingdom. Why does he do that? Because it is necessary for the tribe of Judah to remain not only intact, but there in Jerusalem, so that all of the predictions of the coming Messiah to Jerusalem, to ride that donkey, to be crucified, all of that has to happen. Therefore, God preserves the tribe of Judah while taking the northern ten tribes into captivity. Now, why is that all important? Well, because the Old Testament is just replete with promises, the very same promises that we have seen in the Abrahamic covenant, that God gave that land to the twelve tribes in perpetuity. The land of Canaan belongs to the twelve tribes of Israel. However, once the northern tribes went into the Assyrian captivity, they never returned to their land. But historically, once Christ did come in the early 30s AD, it is only 40 years later until 70 AD when Rome finally conquers Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and it laid waste until 1948. After World War II, Israel and Jerusalem were re-established, and a lot of people took that as a sign that God was fulfilling everything he had promised to Israel eschatologically. I mean, after all, it's difficult to think of any other nation that was destroyed for 1,900 years that suddenly rose up again on the face of human history. But if you know your Bible well, even though the reestablishment of Israel as a nation might be an indication that God is still keeping covenant with the children of Israel, 
it cannot be the fulfillment of that promise because that land belongs to whom? It belongs to Ephraim. It belongs to the northern tribes. The people who are returning to Israel today refer to themselves, we refer to them as the Jews. The word Jew is a shortened version of Judahite, Yehudahite. They identify themselves as descendants of Judah. But the land belongs to Ephraim. The land belongs to Mount Ephraim, collectively, the northern ten tribes. So that promise of the Abrahamic covenant, that physical aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, isn't fulfilled, isn't satisfied, until all twelve tribes are restored to that land. And by the way, the Old Testament prophets say it over and over again. The prophets speak with one voice, that the same way God scattered Israel to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, the same way he's going to regather them and bring them back to that land. That land is promised by the prophets to collective 12 tribe Israel, and they all say that. They all agree that that's what has to happen, and that promise has not come to its fruition until all 12 tribes are back in the land. So even though we can point at the restoration of physical Israel in the Middle East at this moment as a demonstration, as proof that God is still faithfully in covenant with his people, and certainly we can look at it as a harbinger of everything else God has promised to do, but it is not the fulfillment of it yet. It is not the satisfaction of it yet. And by the way, the land they ultimately receive has to go all the way from the Nile up to the Euphrates. And that simply hasn't happened yet. But I argue, the Bible argues, that it does have to happen. These are just some of the things that we learn and that we benefit from by studying the seedology of the Bible. And one other thing you will notice in the Bible, once Jesus does indeed show up on planet Earth, suddenly genealogies become much less important. In fact, even Paul talks about that tradition of endless genealogies. So why does he dismiss them so easily? Because the whole point of tracing the seed through the Old Testament, the whole point of the genealogical record was to demonstrate who Christ was. So that yet again, there is evidence, tangible evidence, provable evidence that he is the very one to come through Judah. The evidence is not just limited to the miracles that he did, or that he was born in Bethlehem, or that he satisfied what the prophets had spoken about him. The evidence is in the genealogical record. And both Matthew and Luke make that point. Now granted, among the Jews to this day, they keep as much genealogical record as they can, because it is going to be necessary for Levites to prove that they are Levites. When the regathering happens, it's going to be necessary to prove 
that there are members of all 12 tribes reestablished in the land. The current genealogical records have their place and have their purpose, but the Old Testament genealogies demonstrate that Jesus was that seed who was promised all the way back to Eve. He is the seed who had his heel bruised but crushed the head of the serpent. He is the seed through whom Abraham was told all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. He is the seed who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the promised seed who is the fulfillment, satisfaction of the Davidic covenant. David was promised, even though we didn't read it in this series of lectures, but David was promised that it was going to be one of his descendants, part of his seed, who was going to sit on the throne of David, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus demonstrated that by saying to his 12 apostles, when I sit on my glorious throne, you will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus expects the reconstitution of Israel, all 12 tribes, And even Paul picks up that language in the book of Romans when he declares all Israel will be saved. He's not talking about every individual who was ever an Israelite. He's saying all the tribes of Israel are going to be reestablished. So if nothing else, I hope that I have encouraged you to pay attention to the seedology that the Bible lays out. As I said before, it is yet again a demonstration that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, because the genealogical record proves it. And then once he has come, the Bible becomes much less interested in those genealogies. Okay, so that's the physical genealogy, the bloodline that you can trace through the Old Testament. But then Paul is going to use the language of seedology when talking about our faith in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're going to address in the last of these seedology lectures for this year. So, I hope you'll stick around, click on the next MP3, and listen to the continuation of the spiritual promise. We know the physical promise now. We know how the physical promise moved to Ephraim, and we know the significance of that. The Abrahamic covenant has not come to its complete fruition until all 12 tribes are back on that land that was promised to them in perpetuity. But then there is the spiritual promise through Judah that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, which Paul refers to as a vital part of our seedology. So, talk to you then.